The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, I'm really pleased to be here, even though I live in Davis uh, and don't get down here on a regular basis. I still consider IMC and IRC my spiritual home, and it's, uh, it's nice to have a chance to be here. And when, I, when uh, Andre called and asked if I would do a series for January, I was really pleased that one of the things that she suggested that I might take up would be the Four Noble Truths, because it just seems to me, from my point of view, the Four Noble Truths are the heart, the kernel of the Buddha's, the Buddha's teachings. One of my earliest teachers, Ayakema, who was a Theravada monk of German descent, used to say that everything besides the Four Noble Truths is excess dharma. <laughs> um, because what was really critical was, was the understanding of the Four Truths. Um, and so I'm really, I'm really um, pleased to be able to talk about that for the next, four, the next four weeks. We'll talk tonight about the Four Truths and in the, the coming weeks about the uh, Eightfold Path in some, in some detail, which is the fourth of the truths. The story goes that the, uh, the Buddha was born. The story, now the story is, is, that comes to us comes to us through some very ancient texts uh, in the Pali language, which is very similar to Sanskrit. And um, these uh, texts are, uh, there are a lot of them. Maybe you might be able to get your arms around them on a bookshelf. The Buddha taught for 45 years and people Tried to rem did their best to remember everything, and eventually when they got to writing it down, it just, you know, scribble, scribble, scribble. But the story, uh, the story is that uh, in these texts is that the Buddha was born uh, as a prince, um, and his father, who was a king, I'm not sure king was quite the description that we, it's not what we think of. Buckingham Palace, but um, his father was very protective, and it wasn't until the Buddha was, he wasn't the Buddha at the time, uh, but until he was 16 when he left the palace grounds with his charioteer and encountered what are traditionally called the four heavenly messengers, and these were uh, a sick man and a uh, and a very old man and a corpse, and also a uh, a renunciate, a monk of sorts, uh, who was living in the forest at the time, uh, seeking awakening. So he encountered human suffering for the first time when he was 16, and it kind of got his attention. Um, when he when he went into the forest himself to try to solve the problem of, of suffering. Um, he spent six years. And at the time of his awakening, um, he formulated this set of um, uh, sort of perspectives on his insight. He had a very deep insight into the nature of the dissatisfaction that, that we all experience uh, in life, one way or another. And he presented it in, in the form of, of these four teachings. Now, the, the phrase noble truth is, um, uh, occurs in, in the Pali uh, canon, but this formula occurs many more times, and it's labeled noble truth sometimes, occasionally. So it sort of looks historically like this was a label that was added later. Arya Sacha is the Pali term, and it got translated as noble truth, because that sort of makes it a precious thing. Um, there are some scholars who prefer to render it as ennobling truths, because the understanding of them makes one noble. But often, the, often the, uh, the little formula is repeated elsewhere in the canon without, without the uh, 
the label noble, noble Truths, it's presented this way. This is one example. Whatever recluses and Brahmins understand as it actually is, this is suffering, this is the origin of suffering, this is the cessation of suffering, and this is the course leading to the cessation of suffering. These recluses and Brahmins are considered by me to be true recluses among recluses, to be true Brahmins among Brahmins. This is the formula of the four, call them truths, Stephen Batchelor just calls them the four. Um, uh, but the, but the, the truths are about suffering or dissatisfaction, the origin, the cause of it, the possibility of cessation and freedom from the dissatisfactions. And the fourth is the path, the way of living, the way of being that uh, leads to the end of suffering and it actually actually is, is the, uh, the, the way of living without suffering. This is a, these are one very profound insight that the Buddha had, and this is what we're going to talk about tonight, is this insight, and to try to clarify it for ourselves. The first of the truths, um, well, all of them are about the word that the Buddha used was dukkha, which is a, a word of dissatisfaction. Uh, it's very broad. It can, be, it can be frustration and irritation. It can be rage and grief. Um, but it's basically a, a position of aversion to what's showing up in a variety of ways. Um, when the Buddha awakened, and the story of his awakening is a little variable. In some places in the canon, it's a night of awakening, where the first watch of the night, he has a certain set of visions, and the second another, and the third, he understands the four truths. Uh, in other places, it feels more like a week of awakening, uh, at the end of which he understood in detail the mechanisms of human suffering. In any case, it's the same insight um, into dissatisfaction. What, there, there are classically uh, three different kinds of dukkha. The first, the first kind of dukkha is just the, the pain of having to be with what you don't want. The pain of not getting what you want. The other is the pain of getting what you don't want. It's not bad enough to not get what you want. You, you all, you're not getting what you want because you want what you can't get. And then there's, uh, so, and that includes physical pain. Um, it includes mental pain. It's the unpleasantness of our life. The, uh, the second kind of, of dukkha is, is uh, the result of the fact that everything changes all the time. Nothing stays put. Nothing stays put. Robert Rauschenberg used to, used to, he was an American painter, said, you can't look at my paintings twice. Because the second time you look, you aren't the same. You've already seen the painting. You know, sort of the opposite side. Was it Democritus who said you can't step in the same river twice? You know, because the river's moving along. But because everything is always changing, just when things look great, you know, losing what is dear, losing what is cherished, is uh, a form of suffering. It's the, the suffering of impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness of things, especially the good things that don't stay put. And the last is what my wife calls storytelling dukkha. Which is the kind, which is what happens when you tell yourself the things should be a particular way. And then, of course, they aren't. And then you get grumpy. <laughs> that, that grumpiness is, is dukkha. Uh, story, 
storytelling dukkha is, is something that we do because we try to figure out what will make things most pleasant for us. And, we, and, and for everyone. And we think that's the way it should be. We don't always necessarily agree. But those are the, those are the, um, those are the principal uh, classical understandings of what dukkha is. Dukkha, the word etymologically, um, I'm, not, I'm not a scholar, but I'll tell you there are two, uh, in this sense, in the, the, um, there are two definitions or two versions that, that I find helpful. One is uh, that it's like a dukkha is a, is a dirty hole, like the axle hole has got dirt in it. So as the axle is going along, it's grinding and creaking and starting and jerking sort of like life, or like a, a wheel that's sort of off-kilter, so you're going ka-thump, thump thump sort of like life. Um, the, first, the first truth is um, listed in the, uh, in the Buddha's first sermon. After his awakening, he want, wanted to teach it. He had to formulate this insight into some language that people could make sense out of. At first he thought, this is pretty obscure, it's pretty hard to understand, and he thought it would just be vexing to him to teach. But then, Brahma came to him and said, please teach, out of compassion for those who have but little dust in their eyes. So he agreed, and his formulation of his insight into the nature of, of, of human dissatisfaction was... Uh, presented to um, five of his companions, his earlier companions. I think they're known as the five ascetics. And uh, he, get, he presented this version that's uh, referred to as the first sermon. Um, what is dukkha? In the first sermon he says, birth is suffering. Most of us reportedly cried the first thing we said was, no. <laughs> or maybe it was, oh no. Um, <laughs> um, birth is suffering. Illness is suffering. Aging is suffering. Death is suffering. Is dukkha. Having to be with the unloved is dukkha. Not being with the loved is dukkha. And losing what is cherished is dukkha. Pain, sorrow, distress, lamentation, and despair are all dukkha. Hmm. It's, a, it's an interesting list, and there are a lot of people, a lot of scholars who spend time making a distinction between birth and death and not getting what you want. Birth and death seem somehow kind of existential, and not getting what you want seems almost in the face of birth and death, kind of, you know, of course, birth and death are, seem to have been things we didn't want. <laughs> so, um, but I look at that list and I think, this is a list of unpleasant things. Everything on that list is unpleasant. There isn't winning the lottery. Of course, I guess he didn't have the lottery. Um, but he didn't say weddings are dukkha. <laughs> you know, wedding, people are generally happy. You know, watching a beautiful sunset, he didn't put that down. Unpleasant experience. It's, it's a list of unpleasant things. And the unpleasantness engages with the second truth which is the truth of the origin, is the way it's described. The second element is the origin of suffering, the origin of dukkha. And this, it seems to me that taking those words literally has led people to think, how does, and, and, and the origin is, in the, uh, is generally translated as desire. It's a particular kind of desire. The Pali word is tanha. It's a particular kind of wanting. But it's led people to think, I think, if, you, if, if desire causes dukkha and 
birth cause is on that list, then desire causes rebirth. Or it causes death. Or it causes desire is the cause. And I'm not so sure it's a cause as much as a conditioning element so that wanting things to be different when you encounter an unpleasant experience not only leaves you with the unpleasant experience but with your own resistance to it. It's, you know, in, in some ways the, the word, the Buddha describes um, tanha phenomenologically. He describes what the experience is like. It's like thirst. It's a kind of wanting that's like thirst. It's a craving. Sometimes the word is translated as craving. And sometimes it's hard to talk about interior states, how you might distinguish between craving and desire. These are internal states, kind of hard to put your finger on. External stuff, I can all say pen, and everybody goes, right, pen. But craving, desire, we're talking about internal states that can be pointed at metaphorically, but hard to, hard to actually nail down. I like, I, you know, the Buddha didn't have evolutionary biology as a, as a um, metaphor available to him. So, so I, I tend to find that it's very helpful in this, in this situation. We are the result, our organisms are the result of what, 5,000 or so generations of humans? And then, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of other, you know, every cell in our body wants to survive. Every cell wants to reproduce. They're very powerful forces in our organism. We want to survive and we want, we want it to be pleasant. Well, actually, if things are pleasant, we have a better chance of surviving than if things are unpleasant. And if we had an ancestor who didn't care whether it was pleasant or unpleasant, well, it probably didn't turn into an ancestor because, you know, <laughs> uh, if you just don't care, you just as soon hurt yourself as not. Um, and if you just were, you know, b you know, totally besotted with pleasure and you s decided to sit out on a rock and enjoy the sun, you'd be lunch before you had a chance to pass on your genes. So a lot of our behavior is, is cultured through our, our evolution so that we want our experience pleasant. Anybody here wake up in the morning and say, how can I, you know, what can I order that will make me miserable? <laughs> Boy, do I not want to do this, that's what I'm going right for. We just don't. We look, we navigate our lives trying to make things pleasant and trying to reduce the amount of unpleasantness. And these are very deep. And, and certainly to survive, and not just to survive physically, but to become something in the future. You know? And it can be, it, it, you know, first in order to be something in the future, you have to survive. But then what do we want to be? Well, we want it to be more pleasant. We want a little bit more control. You know, we, want, we want to be the, we want our recognition in the community to be, established more, we want to be noticed, maybe. We want to become the boss. We want to become uh, a partner. We want to become you know, the owner of a new Porsche Cayenne. <laughs> Hybrid. <laughs> we want to become something in the future. The Buddha said there identified three kinds of tanha. Kama tanha, which is that desire for pleasant experience, for sense pleasures. We like our sensual experience pleasant. Bhava tanha, the desire, the thirst, the need, the underlying craving to be in the future, to survive. And vibhava tanha, which is the the impulse to make the unpleasant stuff go away. And this can be, this can be 
you know, when, when you see a suicide bomber blowing themselves up, make this world and all of the bad stuff in it go away. You know, uh, want to leave a legacy for, our, for posterity? To be in the future, even if you can't be here, to still be here somehow. And of course, these are underlying tendencies in our organism. And I find that, that framing them as um, biological, biologically cultured helps me understand and recognize because it's just happening. You know, most of this life is just happening. And, right? It just happened to me, I think. Uh, and it, I don't know anybody who actually was in on the planning. Um, so this stuff just happens, and it's something that we can observe. We can observe. Um, and observe it happening in us. And dukkha then becomes the unpleasant experience when you have this unpleasant experience, birth, aging, uh, illness, death, pain, sorrow, lamentation, distress, and despair, and it's met with a desire for pleasant, a deep biologically rooted thirst for pleasant experience, we get dukkha. For, for any of you who are familiar with the links of dependent origination, dukkha follows tanha and vedana. So the unpleasant experience is met with this resistance. It's not pleasant. I don't want it. Make it go away. Let me get something else. And so phenomenologically or subjectively, it's experienced as a need, as a thirst, as something we may not even be in control. We just, I got to, I've got to. Just like you need a, to drink water when you're thirsty. You need to eat when you're hungry. You need to somehow make things, make things uh, all right, the way we want, the way, not the way we don't want. That's the, the, the mechanism there. And the third, the third truth is the truth of cessation. It's um, the cessation of tanha, actually. So if you read the text, this is the cessation. It's generally taught the cessation of dukkha. But in the text itself, it says, this, is the, this monk is the noble truth of the cessation of, of dukkha. The remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving. So the third truth is that with the cessation of tanha, dukkha evaporates. That doesn't mean that your body is not going to experience pain. Pain, not, not even sorrow. The Buddha experienced some, some sorrow. There's a, there's a nice little um, sutta where his uh, closest disciples had, had passed just before he, was, before he died. And um, he looks... He, he was old, and he'd been with these people for, I don't know, 25, 30, 40 years. I mean, these were very close associates, his senior disciples, and they both were gone. And he looked out, and he said, this assembly, monks, appears indeed empty to me now that Saraputta and Mahamogalana have passed away. The wistfulness. That kind of sorrow still arises. And we meet it with friendliness and with openness and receptivity and, and it's, it's hard. But the cessation that the Buddha is talking about, Naroda, is, is uh, the cessation of the craving for pleasant, it's the desire to be, it's greed, hatred, and the delusion to think that we could make ourselves happy by satisfying our greed and our aversion. Just the cessation of that craving of that impulse. 
Buddha, uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was a Thai monk, wrote a piece some years ago. You can find it if you Google Nibbana for everyone. He says, you know, actually the cessation occurs frequently in our lives. It certainly occurs when things are wonderful. If you're on the beach at Waikiki, for some reason, that's where I always imagine myself being, you know, out there in the sun with that incredible air, and it just, you know, that, not, not dukkha. Not nibbana either, actually. But nibbana is very close. Here's Saraputta on nibbana, which is, uh, he was asked, Nibbana, Nibbana, what is Nibbana? And Saraputta said, the destruction of lust, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. This friend is called Nibbana. What is Arhatship, the mastery of, of the teachings? <clears throat> it said, Arhatship, Arhatship, what now is Arhatship? The destruction of lust, the destruction of hatred, and the destruction of delusion. This friend is called Arhatship. So the third truth is about the cessation of, of um, tanha and the disappearance, the end of, end of dukkha. Now the Buddha said, you know, he, in, in places, in the various places in the, in the uh, text, he said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. This is what the, what, the, uh, what the four truths are, are pointing to. Suffering and the end of suffering. Um, the fourth truth, <coughs> the fourth formulation is the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path, when I first heard about the Eightfold Path, I thought it was too many folds. I thought, <laughs> keep it simple, you know. Um, what's the one? But after a while, you sort of... You know, these four truths, actually, if you see any one of them fully, all the others appear. They all make sense. The path of living without suffering uh, has eight elements to it that are, that are often clustered in, um, in different ways. I'm going to rattle them off just so that you hear them in case you aren't familiar with them. And I'm going to use the word right view although I'll quibble with right in a little bit. But right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. These are also eight elements that are actually refractions of one way of being, one way of living. It's an eightfold path. And the eightfold path is the path of living without dukkha. It's also path of... Uh, leading to the end of dukkha. It's both the path and the goal. And so the elements of these paths are all in the service of the cessation of tanha. And in the, in the next three weeks when we get to, to talking about them in more detail, we'll go through how some of them are uh, um, how each of them specifically contributes to the cessation of of uh, tanha and dukkha. These four ta- these four, um, these four truths, as I say, are, are all a way of presenting a single insight. One of the things that the Buddha said uh, uh, during the first ser- uh, sermon was that each of these tasks, rep- each of these tasks, each of these truths so-called truths, represents a particular task. So we have a different task in relationship to each one of them. For the first truth, which is the truth of dukkha, is how it's usually presented, the truth of suffering. Suffering comes with the territory, um, the territory being our lives. Um, The first truth is to be understood. That's the task that he identified for that. You know, the idea is to be able to recognize dukkha. And so he was pointing at the things to look at. How would you, 
you were trying to point at an internal experience, I mean, this is the realm of art. He's working to try to, to point at in, internally what causes suffering. Well, what is suffering? Birth, aging, illness, not getting what you want, sorrow, pain, lamentation, distress, and despair. And dukkha is a conditioned arising. It's a composite. It's a composite of unpleasant experience and tanha. There's nothing wrong with tanha, by the way. There's nothing wa- wrong with wanting to survive and reproduce and, you know, become. This is, we've, we've been cultured to be this way. The problem is that it doesn't necessarily lead to peace of mind. We like to watch, we have a place where birds hang out, and they, these guys are not relaxed. <laughs> you know, the sparrows, and no, they're, not, they're not laid back. No. Um, for those of us who are, fine, are recognizing that dukkha itself is unpleasant, well, it's unpleasant because part of the vector is this list of unpleasant experience. We're noticing it's unpleasant, and we're trying to address that. And it means addressing our own, our own contribution here. The second, the second truth, or the second element, is to be um, abandoned. Tanha is to be abandoned. And this is really the essence of all of it is to the abandoning of, of this craving, not to take it up. You, know, you can see that wanting pleasant experience, wanting things to be the way we want, leads people to disputing, to fighting. It's what the Buddha saw. To our own dissatisfaction. You know, I, I do some work, I do work at uh, Folsom Prison, I'm working um, in the, the psychiatric wing at the present time, working with guys who are very self-aware. Well, I'm a bank robber. Uh, I just, I'm okay, I just don't have any impulse control. <laughs> no impulse control. A lot of them recognize they have no impulse control. They just act out on, yeah, I know. <clears throat> what a surprise. Um, but we're all taught a certain modicum of impulse control, but, you know, how many times do we shoot our mouths off and regret things that we've said or done and um, all in, in the interest of trying to make things better for ourselves, more pleasant for ourselves? You know, the, the trick is to not take the bait that that impulse, that impulse of tanha is urging us to take the bait. The Buddha t- tells a story about how when he was practicing to become the Buddha, he would walk in the forest. Now in the forest at that time, this was not like Golden Gate Park. There were actually animals there that, that ate others. <laughs> and the Buddha, <laughs> others, and, and the Buddha said he would, he would be walking through, and when he would hear the rustling of leaves or sounds, he would stop, he would freeze, and not move until the fear went away. He would study the fear and learn to become so familiar with it that it no longer controlled him. And what we, what we need to do is to learn to become so familiar with tanha, with the, with the experience of it, that it doesn't control us. That doesn't mean that we don't defend ourselves if we need to defend ourselves, that we don't eat when we're hungry, you know, we, we, it's a little wisdom here. Um, but, to be, but to be able to have the choice where we're not just the slave of, of aversive impulses. That we don't just think, well, if, I can, if only this happens, then I'll be happy and, you know, don't anybody stand in the way. You know, our job is, is to learn to not automatically jump. It's like the Buddha learned not to jump uh, at the impulses for recognition. He, he 
chime in on something just so that everybody knows that you're part of the conversation, you know, or seek, seeking praise. Um, not always need to have things our way. Now, there's a great story where the, where the Buddha meets with his cousin in the, the woods, and he's, his cousin is living with uh, um, four other monks. And the Buddha says, how, how, do you, uh, how do you guys, you guys get along out here? And he said, yeah. We, he said, well, how do you do that? And his cousin said, well, I, I consider it such, such a blessing to be with these other uh, monks that I say to myself, why not set aside what I would like to do and instead do what they want to do? And they feel the same. And so we live in harmony. So the principal thing we can learn from our meditation is to recognize those impulses when they arise and just watch how they work. We can know about them. I mean, my, my poor friends in, in, at Folsom Prison, they know about their impulse control problem. They don't know their impulse control problem. They are, don't know it intimately enough to be able to do anything about it. They're just totally, they know all about it. There I go again. Um, I mean, I've, I've been there. I, I remember buying an Apple Newton. And as I walked across the floor of the Moscone Center, I was saying to, to write a check for $800 or whatever it was, this is what desire is like. I want that Newton. <laughs> you know, so, you know, no impulse control there. <laughs> um, the Newton itself was the control, as it turned out. And the third truth is to be realized. The truth of cessation is to be realized. You know, the, the third truth is the truth of Naroda, which is, which is um, uh, uh, translated as cessation, means to stop leaking. Naroda is not quite Nibbana. I, I understand, my own understanding is that Nibbana is when the, the impulses of Tanha no longer arise because we recognize them so clearly and our position in regard to them has been there, done that. I know where it's, where it's heading. But in the meantime, cessation. We can work towards the attenuation of, um, we work towards the attenuation of our, our dissatisfaction by learning to recognize the impulses uh, that lead us to make things worse for ourselves and others. Usually we think that we're doing things to make things better. But often we lose track with desire. It's like, it's like the moth and the flame. The moth only sees the flame. It doesn't see anything else. Everything is dark. The flame is totally captivating and he flies right into it. He doesn't see his own compulsion, his own internal processes that lead him to fly into that flame. And the Eightfold Path is the path which is to be cultivated. It's the instruction, the task for the, for the Eightfold Path is to cultivate these elements for the purpose of seeing, um, controlling our behavior so that we can see. So when you sit, the mind shows up. Anybody notice the mind? That's all that thinking? You know, when you close your eyes. When you're walking around the streets, don't always notice it. It's going, it's doing, but you're, you know, you're out there trying to not get hit by a car, or I'm just listening to cars. So if we sit still and, and let, the, let those impulses arise and pass, the eight elements of the path are sometimes broken down into uh, elements, wisdom elements, uh, ethical conduct elements and meditation elements. But they're all one path. You could also say that the first path would be right understanding or right view, and the rest so would be beliefs and practices or views and practices. You could split it up that way as well. But the idea is that we, we work the path, and it is a unified path. It's not... 
eight scattered elements. In, in Davis, my group in Davis, we think of it as a basketball. We have this phrase for the, this, con, this concept of the basketball. So here's the eightfold basketball. It's a sphere. It's brown. It's made of rubber. It's got a lot of dimples on it. It's about 15 inches across, weighs about two pounds, filled with compressed air. Is that eight? Is that the eightfold bas basketball? It's, it's a basketball, but you can't just play with the brown. You know, just the dimples are not the basketball. You know, it's the whole thing. So the Eightfold Path is a whole path. It's a path of, of living. Understanding how to live without suffering. Of living without suffering. Living without making things worse. And cultivating the mind so that we have the skill and the, the ability to see clearly <clears throat> so that we can do that. So over the next, the next three weeks, we're going to talk about the path in, in some considerable detail and, and look at the mechanism that the Buddha... I mean, this is the Buddha's program. This is what he said. This is what to do. Um, the Buddha's... The Buddha's uh, his description of the mechanism for bringing an end to, to dissatisfaction in our life. So let me just, uh, we have a few minutes and I think, um, you know, it's a lot of material because, because ultimately almost all of the, the, the teachings of the Buddha can be mapped onto the four, to these four truths one way or another. Um, so this is really uh, an incredibly rich uh, resource to be mined. So let me just check and see if you guys are, Have, are all enlightened, or whether you're all puzzled, or are taking the middle path. Please. Um, I, like you, have been studying this a long time. Um, one of the major themes is impermanence. You brought it up tonight. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly intellectually, it's easy to understand that. I mean, you know, you can grasp that in 60 seconds or less. Just look around the world. But um, my world is highly predictable in terms of what I do. When I go out tonight, my car will probably be there. Now, there's a chance it won't be, but the chances are it will be. My house will be there. Mm -hmm. uh, I probably won't die, but I may. So when you talk about impermanence... Um, it seems like, uh, okay, most of the things of the world go on in the world are not under my control. That's obvious, too. But in terms of the way we live our lives, it's fairly, on a daily basis, highly predictable in terms of if we set our lives up. Now, that doesn't mean that we control every little second, every given moment. But in terms of overall, I think it's, it, it's highly predictable. So I'm not sure... and it, and. Um, and it's certainly not absolutely predictable, okay? I mean, I'm not, I'm not claiming that. But in terms of how I live it, um, so I'm not sure uh, when you say impermanence, there's, there's a certain intellectual obviousness to it. But in terms of the way you live your life, it's not like this total random series, random events every moment of my life. So I need some uh, explication in terms of what you really mean by that. By impermanence? Well, boy, um, I'm looking at the clock and thinking, that's a whole other talk. Let me say a couple of things quickly. First of all, everybody understands intellectually that everything is changing. There is no thing. Things are nouns, they exist in language, but in experience, everything is, is changing. Just because we base our behavior on predictions that we make that we have confidence and faith in doesn't mean that the experience is predictable. I wound up uh, last spring on the way to, uh, uh, you know, to six hours in the ER after eating something in a, in a very upscale restaurant. Who knows what it was? That was, you could have said, well, that's part of the, it's statistical. It's not predictable. 
It's we make predictions because we want security. We don't like this insecurity, particularly the big impermanence, the ultimate impermanence. We just, we just, you know, we don't, we, we don't want to later. And that's really at the heart of delusion. I was, I was, I was reading, and, and so the, 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 the idea that things are predictable, hmm, that's how we, we, you know, the security we want. We want to cling to that. We want to hold on to that. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it, it doesn't, life doesn't play out that way all of the time. Uh, if there weren't some patterns, if we didn't recognize certain patterns in our experience, even day and night, um, tired and, and fresh, uh, we, we, can tell, we know that if we call somebody a jerk, they probably will return in kind. You know, there's some patterns. We know if we drop something, it falls. These are conceptual constructs that we build to help us navigate and live more successfully. We are incredibly successful as a species because we've got incredible computing power. But one of the things we do is we don't want to look at, at the, the real truths. We want to avoid them. I was reading a story in the Times uh, a week or two ago about uh, how doctors die. And doctors find themselves getting into hospice a lot quicker than the rest of us. And uh, the guy who was describing this said, well, the purpose of hospice is to provide the highest possible quality of life for the time remaining. And I thought, geez, we're all in hospice. <laughs> you know? But we don't want to address that. We sort of later. So even though, as Joseph Goldstein says, anything can happen at any time, what you thought was going to be an easy, <clears throat> a, a pleasant celebratory dinner turns into... You know, something that is uh, not. It pays to remind ourselves. My wife had a practice for years of putting her, as she put her hand on the doorknob to go out in the morning to leave the house for the first time, she would pause and say, this could be my death day. Just because of the uncertainty. Just to remember that there's that statistical probability, possibility. Sometimes it's a probability, sometimes it's a possibility. You know? um, we do want security. We look for things to cling to, the truth, something permanent, an idea, uh, something to, to meaning in life. We want something to cling to, something stable, because we don't want, we want to stop this on-rushing movement in one certain direction. And I guess the, the only other thing that I would say is that our, our, because of the impermanence, and it's profound, it's internal, the thoughts that you were thinking when you walked in here, not there anymore. Now you may think that that's trivial, but our thoughts, our understandings, as we'll, as we'll, we'll, we'll uh, talk about, uh, next week, our understandings drive our, our intentions and our behavior. You know, if we think we're going to make ourselves happy by, by getting what we want, what we cherish, what, what, is most, what we think of as most dear, we're probably going to suffer a lot. That kind of delusion is not, you know, if we recognize the uncertainty of things, then when pleasant stuff shows up, and it certainly will, it's very nice. <laughs> you know. But if we understand that it will pass, then we don't grieve when it goes, or at least not so much. We all say, yeah, we understand about impermanence, and then we go, where's my pen? <laughs> oh, my, my car broke down. You know, things, the glass broke. That's probably a summary of about a 45-minute talk. So, anything else, anybody, with regard to what we were talking about? The four, tr four truths?
So it's always struck me that the four noble truths, they're, they're about suffering. Mm -hmm. there's, no, there's no happiness ah. in there at all. It's just make the suffering. I mean, we're going to die, then the suffering will all go away. So where, where's the rest? What are you going to do tonight? Are you going to live in a way that will make things worse, or are you going to live in a way that will make things better? It's hard to live in a way that will make things better if you don't recognize your own tendencies to do things that throw a monkey wrench in the works. You know, if you, uh, if, if you always speak your mind, you're probably going to irritate some people, you know, and will get some blowback. Um, my mother used to do that. And she would say, that's just the way I am. Unable to see that some of those comments were harmful, were hurtful. You know? A lot of people are, so if you don't recognize the impulses which lead you to say, I want what I want, everybody out of the way, to not see, once, once you see that you've got this compulsion to fly into that flame, you can say, you know, I don't need to do that. There's plenty of joy right there. Um, if you don't make things worse. I rem and you can, you, can, you can mess up even a pleasant experience. I remember building a fire once. My wife was, had gone off to the store and I got it done right and it was, it was absolutely incredible. And I thought, uh-oh, I know what happens to fires. There's this great thing at the beginning and it looks great and then it starts to die. Is she going to get back from the store in time to see this? Oh no, I did this whole thing. It was, you know, and I, I ruined the moment. <laughs> For myself, and of course she didn't get home in time to see it either, so I didn't get to enjoy the fire because I was busy in my mind. Uh, John Tarrant, who's a Zen teacher up in, he had a similar experience with the sunset, where he, he couldn't enjoy it because he wanted to share it. So you can mess up a pleasant experience. What seems like joy, you can, anybody ever done that? <laughs> you know? Um, so the idea is to not mess it up. There's tons of excess joy out there if you just don't make things worse. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Anything else? That's the quote of the night. That's, <laughs> That's the quote that goes in the wall. Excess joy? Ah. Tons of excess joy. It's, sel it's like salvage, you know? <laughs> well, thank you guys for your attention. I will see you next week.